so we've got a special guest today. My name is Inigo San Milan, and I'm an associate research professor at the University of Colorado. I've marveled at his science for years. I work in the Department of Human Physiology and Nutrition in Colorado Springs, and also at our Anschutz Medical Campus, where I work in the Division of Endocrinology, um, Metabolism, and Diabetes. What got you interested well, in human physiology in general, and maybe mitochondrial function in particular. I have been an athlete all my life, and I, I, I played six years in the, in the academy for Real Madrid uh, in Spain when I was a kid, but I was never a, a good one, so I never got to be <laughs> And then I discovered cycling, and then I, I turned into cycling. I left everything, and I started cycling. And, and I, I raced professional for two years, but a very low level, so I was never either a, a, a top pro. So I, I was a frustrated and truncated professional athlete because I never got to be to the top level. <laughs> but I, I, I was always very curious about how to improve performance, how the human limits, how to improve recovery, the physiology, the lactate. When I was already 15 years old, I, I did you know test to myself with heart rate monitor. I bought, nobody had a heart rate monitor. Like I'm talking about poof 84 or 85. And I had my heart rate monitor. I, 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 I used all my savings, you know, to buy a heart rate monitor that back in the days were about $200 or, or 400, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So, but and that was very, I was very interested always in, 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 in understanding this. And so when I was still with my career, I, I, I said, Hey, I would love to do this as a professional career once I leave cycling, which would be soon because I don't have much future. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> So that's what I, yeah, it's just, it was, it was a smooth transition because as I was studying, I was still being a cyclist. And then I started doing internships at, uh, it was the top sports medicine clinic in Spain. That was the place where PRP was developed. And, and I learned a lot and I started, you know, running the exercise physiology laboratory there. Being able to, to speak with the cyclists, of the runners, of the, of the soccer players, because I, I was one of them, it has been helping me a lot to, to be able to work in this field. I understand very well. Knowing what you know now, was it mostly in the head or was it mostly environment or genetics that stood between you and becoming a, a, a higher performance professional athlete at the time, whether it was soccer or maybe cycling? Do you, do you have a better sense now of what stopped you? And I, I think I do. I, I think, uh, yeah, my head was not. I, I, I didn't, I didn't check the box for the head. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, you know, I, I was. I see other athletes now that I, I used to overthink things too much. Uh -huh. I had anxiety. Like, uh, I, 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 I really wanted to perform, but I, I, I was. I felt the pressure, and uh, yeah, my head was not what it should be. And uh, and also, I, I, I trained way too much. I didn't eat enough. I, I didn't have a, a dis I mean, eating disorder, but I definitely, like many athletes, like I would say 70% of the athletes out there, I had a disordered eating. I was looking always at, oh man, I'm, I'm eating too much fat or, or oh crap, this is like a five, five grams of fat. Ah, I should just try to find a food that has only one. What does mitochondria function sit in terms of being one of the drivers of human performance? Where does it sit in terms of the hierarchy of things? So to me, it, it is at the epicenter, right? It is that, that's where you generate energy. And uh, by energetics, it's key for performance. It's about first, how well you utilize fuels for, uh, for energy purposes, like how well your glycolytic capacity is, and then how well your ox uh, oxidative phosphorylation is how well your fat oxidation is, even how good your 
this is something that we've seen now with another through the research, how well your protein uh, metabolism is. So everything happens in the mitochondria. People say the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, but that's such a limited answer. It's it's that plus plus is the, the is is really the more expansive view of the role of mitochondria these days. It has a, it has a lot more. It has a role in immunology, has a role in cancer, and on and on. Absolutely, and, and yeah, when, when mitochondria are, are are working well, they're incredible. Not just to generate energy, but also. It's the best way to clear lactate, but also when they're not working properly, they can cause disease. And this is what we're seeing now in different cardiometabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, as well as in, in, in other diseases like cancer and even Alzheimer's. Mitochondria occur in different proportions in different parts of the body. We see more and more active tissues, less and less active tissues. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? So. Normally, the more oxidative a tissue is, that is, the more fatty acids that the tissue utilizes, the more mitochondria uh, there is. And, and for that, the heart is, is uh, probably the organ in the body with the most uh, mitochondria density. Then the, the, the least uh, oxidative and the more glycolytic a tissue is, the less mitochondria there is there. And for that, we have, for example, the, the brain. And the, the brain, because, yeah, the brain is, is very glycolytic. And they don't necessarily need a lot of mitochondria, although mitochondrial dysfunction is a key part of Alzheimer's disease. And then we have other tissues who are extremely oxidative, like the skeletal muscle. Right. And for that, there's a big number of, of mitochondria, and, and they're very, very active. And since skeletal muscle as, as an organ, because now we're starting to, 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 to look more at, at, at the muscle as an organ because the crosstalk to, with other organs, which is a big deal right now. And a very important thing that not many people talk about is that about 80% of the carbohydrates that we metabolize postprandial, that is after a meal, they're metabolizing through muscle. Hmm. And we have skeletal muscle in the mitochondria. And also the first tissue that sees type 2 diabetes is the skeletal muscle as well. So it's a very important organ. I've been fascinated by the science of the mitochondria, mainly by reading your work and then diving beyond that as I've tried to optimize my own lifestyle for longevity. And I've always known that low heart rate zone two training uh, is important to our health, yet it seems that the whole fitness world is moving to... Uh, Peloton style uh, rides where you're riding in zone four, zone five, and killing yourself every day and being pushed every day. Perhaps you can just break the ice on how important uh, zone two training and what exactly is zone two heart rate training. Many people out there, they're training very high intensities, and now it's a, it's a big deal the whole high intensity interval training, hit. And people want to get like very fast improvements in short period of time. But this is not what we see working with the best athletes in the world. Whether it's a rower, which is a very high intensity, or a swimmer, or a, or a marathon runner, or a cyclist, about 80% of the, of the total workload throughout the year is in that lower intensity, more like towards the zone two, and also recovery days even. About 20% is in the high intensity zones. This is also a very interesting concept that is called the polarized training, 
which is about the 80-20, roughly, which is what we see in athletes. I always say that we can't be so naive to think that the best athletes and coaches in the world who, who are always trying to find the edge, trying to find what's the latest out there, how we can improve training, how we can push the limits, they haven't thought about these concepts before. Of course, they have tried it, uh, you know, and, but it has never worked. And so these concepts we see for us working in, in the elite professional sports uh, arena, we know this for many years. But unfortunately, what, what, what many people out there in the society, more at the recreational level, if you will, those concepts are lost in translation somehow. Hmm. So what are the changes that are occurring at the mitochondrial level in zone two that makes it so beneficial to us? This is something that I don't think we still have the, the answer because this is something that we're working on doing studies and, and looking at more at the uh, biopsy level. But in the meantime, we, what we have is a lot of experience and, and many surrogates for mitochondrial function, which is uh, your lactate cleanse capacity, as well as your fat oxidation. And now I am correlating all these parameters directly with mitochondrial function. We're getting at the university muscle biopsies from people and we're injecting those muscle biopsies, different substrates to see what's the, the utilization by the mitochondria. We're also looking at the, the, the respiration of the mitochondria in general and the function of the mitochondria. But going back to the question, what, what I've seen over 25 years working with athletes is that the way I look at how mitochondrial function improved or uh, not improved is by looking at surrogates, as I said earlier. So there are two main surrogates that we see, which is fat oxidation and also lactate clearance capacity. So both fat and lactate are mitochondrial substrates. Uh, fat can only be oxidized in the mitochondria during exercise, and lactate is oxidized by the mitochondria as a fuel, and that's the way you clear that out. So by looking at those two parameters, you can indirectly look at the mitochondrial function. So that's when we see like an athlete who trains are always a high intensity. I don't see changes in, in, in those numbers. Mm. Athletes who train too easy, maybe that would be like the zone one, you don't see much of a change. And what I've seen over and over again, not just in rowers or swimmers, but in football players, but also obviously in endurance athletes, is that that zone two is the exercise intensity, the sweet spot where the magic happens. It seems to be an intensity where you stimulate those mitochondria the most. We never really talked about the whole 220 minus age in terms of trying to dictate whether you're in zone two or not. I know that's a pretty equivocal and messy way of doing things, but is it of any use at all for people? No, that, that's a, that doesn't have a, any scientific validation. In fact, yeah. uh, the 220 minus your age was, I think, 50, 60 years ago. And it was observational. But that, that this is we see all the time. Two people with the same age and one people, uh, maximum heart rate is 190 and the other one is 170. Yeah. So this is what 220 minus your age can really jeopardize people. And uh, it's like saying the average American man is is five uh, nine and uh, 175 pounds. It's like, well, good luck with that. Hemophysiology is the same. It seems awkward to say this, but if you don't have the tools to go to a laboratory and get your zone two, it's much more accurate than 220 minus your age or even VO2 max, that, that talk test. If you're talking and, and can breathe perfectly with another person, you're zone one. If you can not talk at all or, or barely can talk uh, while exercising, you're in zone three or four. If you can talk and, and it's, you, you need an effort, probably zone two. And that is probably more accurate than any of these formulas. 
And then in the people that we see in our everyday lives too, and those of us who who are athletes but have other comorbidities such as diabetes, they have unique issues because of their mitochondria, such as the metabolic inflexibility, etc. Yes, absolutely. We have finalized the first phase of this study, and we should uh, publish the results within the next months. We see that people with type 2 diabetes, they're on the opposite metabolic pole of those elite athletes. And this is why I'm bringing the elite athlete to the table as the reference, because uh, we can learn a lot from these uh, perfect athletes. I always say you can never understand imperfection if you don't know perfection in the first place. Mm. And we see that these metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes, they're characterized by metabolic inflexibility as well as mitochondrial dysfunction. And, and what are the mechanisms and how we can monitor them and diagnose them and even improve them. So this is what we have the elite athletes. They don't have any forms of obesity or acquired type 2 diabetes or acquired cardiovascular disease. And yet they have the highest carbohydrate diet in, in, in the planet. And I'm not saying that everybody else should have carbohydrates as much as them, but we're seeing incredible differences across the board from substitution to metabolic flexibility to free radicals. So the fatty acids, are these local or within the muscle or are these being mobilized by the liver? What's the primary source? This is something that is called the athlete's paradox. So what he started to look into that, what was the, those intramuscular triglycerides, fatty acids inside or fat inside the muscle. So what he saw is that he looked at like elite athletes or well-trained athletes and also people with type 2 diabetes and obesity. And then the, the control people, he used sedentary, they didn't have any disease. But what he saw that, that the sedentary without any form of disease, they didn't have what's called the fat droplet. Both the athlete and the person with type 2 diabetes, they have the same fat droplet. Mm. That was called the athlete's paradox. Now, further research had shown that there's a big difference between the two fats. So the fat from the well-trained athlete, it's, it's an adaptation process probably because it's an extra reservoir for fat oxidation. So it's, it's very plausible to think that human evolution of those athletes has uh, taken them to a place where they have an extra reservoir of fat right by the mitochondria. And in fact, hmm. about 15 to 20% of all the fat oxidation during exercise is probably coming from that fat dropping in the mitochondria. Whereas the person with type 2 diabetes, and this is what we're seeing in our research, they cannot oxidize fats properly. They have a downregulation of the fat oxidation, so it's very possible that that fat is building up outside the mitochondria. Now, the content of the fat is completely different. The content of the fat, of that fat droplet around the mitochondria in people with type 2 diabetes, it has a lot of inflammation mediators and uh, some substances called the ceramides. Probably they're like uh, released from that fat and might end up in other tissues. And, and this is why we believe there's a connection between mitochondrial dysfunction and, and cardiovascular disease. People who have looked at the atheroma plaque, the main composition of the atheroma plaque are the ceramides hmm. that ought to come from the liver. You mentioned lactate gets a pretty bad rap. So can you get into that a little bit deeper? It's, it's not the lactate that we should be worried about. It, it's, a, it's a byproduct of a reaction that's going on and is actually hugely important, not something necessarily to be fearful of, per se. Yeah, lactate is a fascinating thing. 
you know, and uh, in the 1920s, several Nobel Prizes, they were very fascinated by metabolism. And, but they all thought that lactate was a waste product. And it kept embedded in, in medical books, in, hmm. in chemistry, biochemistry books, as a, as a waste product of, of anaerobic metabolism. Until in uh, the 80s, 1980s, where my colleague and mentor and good friend, George Brooks, from the University of California in Berkeley, he started to delve into this. And, and he was decided to prove everybody who was wrong. And he's been showing us the way and demonstrating that lactate is not just a waste product. It's a, it's a major fuel for the body. It's a major gluconeogenic component that is it can be re- recycled back to, to glucose. For example, it has been proven that the brain under stress in ICU patients with a traumatic brain injury, the brain prefers lactate than glucose. It's a way in a way like to see like a cleaner energy. <laughs> the heart is a great user of, of, of lactate as well. And, and also what we know now, and this is something that Brooks and I are doing in, in cancer, we know that it is a regulator of many processes in the body. The problem with lactate is that when it builds up right away, like it's in exercise, it's not lactate per se, but it's the hydrogen ions associated to lactate. They decrease the, they increase the acidosis of the muscle. But in other diseases like cancer, it's characterized by a very large production of lactate. And that's a word effect that Otto Warburg discovered in 1923, almost 100 years ago. And what struck Warburg was that cells use a lot of glucose and they produce a lot of lactate. And back then, almost 100 years ago, Warburg already saw that, oh, if there's lactate production, there's got to be a mitochondrial injury in cancer cells. And that's why he proposed that cancer is a mitochondrial disease or a metabolic disease caused by an injury of the respiratory system, which is, which is mitochondria. But we see very well nowadays that that lactate, it's a key feature in cancer and that uh, regulates all the major genes involved in different cancers. To, to what degree would you uh, attach a genetic versus an environmental component to mitochondrial efficiency, angiogenesis, oxidation, these drivers of uh, physiological efficiency with respect to being a top athlete, as opposed to simply having a, the, the discipline to be able to do the kinds of things that you need to do to become a top athlete. So try to parse that out so that we can understand the balance. In my modest opinion, to become a, a, a very good athlete and, a, and a, even a professional athlete, you need some forms of genetics, but you, they're not the main player. I think that to be maybe at the level of Tadej Pogacar, who has won the Tour de France, I think that that level, yeah, the genetics, and we clearly see these guys from a different planet. But to, to become a, a regular pro cyclist or regular marathon runner, I think that genetics is it's there, but there are other players, like the way you train, mm-hmm. the way you recover, your nutrition, your mind, your mentality. So I always, I always give this analogy that like a, a pizza without tomato sauce is not a pizza. It doesn't discriminate one pizza from the other. It's the, it's the toppings that make the difference, the genetics is that tomato sauce for a pizza. It has to be there somehow. It, it's what you do with that, the toppings. And the toppings are the training, the nutrition, the recovery, your mental capacity, your will, your power, to, 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 to your desire and your passion. 
You were involved in a, an advisory capacity with UAE Team Emirates, who's a rider for which won the Tour de France this year. You just alluded to his name, and I'm going to say it poorly, but Tadia Pogachar. By the way, it was I'm glad he wasn't watching the coverage because every announcer pronounced his name differently. So it was like a different <laughs> guy on each stage, but it turned out to be the same guy, just depended on how they pronounced his name. So back in the Lance Armstrong era, ignoring Lance's other problems, we used to talk about certain fitness parameters like watts per kilogram and things like that. That, that if I got to certain hurdle levels, I was probably going to be competitive in this year's tour. Were there things that you knew or saw that told you in advance of this year's tour that Tadej Pogacar was likely to be a contender? Was there some measures that you could identify that told you, boy, this guy's going to be special this year? Yeah, absolutely. This is something that we already saw last year. And, and this year, this has been more confirmed. So... One thing is like with Tadej specifically, first his lactic cleanse capacity is, is off the chart. At an intensity of let's say 5.5 watts per kilogram, our regular pro has about seven millimoles of lactate. Uh, you know, Tadej might be two or three. Aye. Wow, you know. Um, but yes, to be a top, top competitor in a climb, you need about 6.3, 6.2 to 6.4 watts per kilogram. Aye. It depends on your weight. A little heavier riders, they might be like about 6.2, but I mean, lighter riders might be about 6.4. Which know? is a bananas number, by the way. Just to put that on the record right now, that's just crazy. Yeah. I know, exactly. But but this is what we I already saw last year, uh, that he had close to those numbers. And in fact, I mean, he, he won the Tour de l'Avenir, which is the baby Right, Tour of the Future or whatever, yeah. Exactly. So, and we know from history that the majority of the riders who win that tour they're destined to be to be a, one of the best riders in the professional category so he won it and then last last year in vuelta he was third overall mm -hmm. but, and then this year we saw that you know his numbers were kept improving we expect as i said any 21 year old kid that or 22 that he's going to be keeping improving he was doing in fact in may those numbers he's doing 6.3 what's going climbing after five hours on the bike. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and who knew it? And this is why in May, I, I, I had to tell him to stop. He was way too strong. And, and, and that's because the uncertainty, we haven't been in these times. It was four months away. And so we, we needed to, okay, let's, let's, let's take a shot and uh, let's take a week off. Because I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit scared that he's not going to maintain this form for four months. Right? Yeah. So, Anyway, but he was. But these numbers, absolutely, we we can we could see that already in training. Is that not unusual at that age? My my sense of the tour historically, it's an endurance sport, and like many endurance sports, eighteen year olds weren't at their best. Twenty one year olds were getting better. Twenty two, twenty three, twenty four. Is it is that still hold that there's a a curve in terms of endurance athletes, generally speaking, peaking a little bit later than they might in other sports, or is that not really true? I would say that all these things are changing. And, and as we see uh, this new generation, many writers, they're in their, yeah. in their lobbies and they're dominating it. But this is something that we see in other sports. My take on that is that these athletes, they start training earlier. Mm. Like here in America, for example, and, and in many places in Europe, although they start earlier training, but in, in the United States, it's very, very rare to see like a 17-year-old a kid with a coach. They start getting a coach when they're 19, 20, 21. In Europe, they might start earlier, but still, uh, someone with 13, 14, not many of these kids have a coach. But now, all these kids have been having a coach for years. So I think that's a very important thing. It's like, I always say, if, if you have talent to play piano and you start at the age of nine, by the time you're 
16, 17, you're going to be very good and you might go to a good uh, piano school. But if you start at the age of 16, you, you might miss the boat. <laughs> and I think that these guys now, they start uh, training more structure at a, at a much higher, much earlier age. And by the time they're 19, they're much better off than, than, than someone who starts training seriously at the age of 17. Yeah, it's it's wow. it's remarkable. Having watched the tour since before the Enduran era, I've I've never seen anything quite like it in terms of this cohort of young endurance athletes appearing on the scene. Exactly, and this is the other thing too that I mean, like every sport, every twenty twenty five years, there's someone exceptional, and and, and I think that's what's due. The last big champion that we saw was probably yeah Miguel Enduran, and I thought that uh, we would we were due. Also, we have another kid called Evan Paul. Yep, who's very good. he's remarkable. Uh, yeah. Remarkable, and uh, he might be another true contender as well. I'd like to, you know, turn it back to Paul and I selfishly, and those who we love to share this podcast with. I'd like to stress the importance of zone two training. I'm not against hard trainings. I think that's important for all of us, whether we want to just sweat or, or get better. How does the average uh, runner or racer, bicyclist, know that they are in zone two? The best way to know this is by doing a metabolic test and where we can look at different parameters. That I hope that more and more laboratories throughout the country come up and they can offer this because it's very important and there are not many laboratories and resources out there to to help athletes but if you don't have that it's it's difficult i would say that going by the feeling and and breathing test or i mean the breathing whatever perception where you can uh if you can talk and breathe uh with some effort uh, while you're exercising that could be close to your zone too If, if you can't talk at all you're way off, and if you can well, <laughs> yeah, and it's hard, very hard. If you're not there. You might be zone one or so. How how relevant is checking your lactate levels? Uh, so I do this a lot in the laboratory. I, I look at a little bit of a compendium of uh, different parameters, like the, your fat max, which is the exercise intensity, the one you burn the most fat, and that that coincides with the recruitment of of the type one muscle fibers. Once the, the type 2 muscle fibers are recruited, which are one of the ones that use glucose, for the most part, you're losing the, uh, um, the, the, the fat oxidation in those muscles. So by looking at these, that you're not anymore in the, in the type 1 muscle fibers, you're already in the glycolytic system, which is not zone 2 anymore. Mm. So I look at the fat max and also look at the first inflection point of lactate, and they usually tend to coincide. And this is where, where we establish that training zone. Uh, that is for a person. I think after Paul and I get a vaccine, we, we need to come out to your university for some tests. But if you're talking to Paul and I as cyclists with an FTP of, I don't know, 200, 225, we want to live longer, but maybe get a little better. How should we train? Should yeah. we do three long, slow rides a week and one sprint session? And, 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 and again, I would mention that whole 80-20, right. which is what we do with, with the best athletes out there, regardless of the sport. There are three basic principles. One is the, to establish the, the exercise intensity at the one you train zone two, for example, as we have mentioned. That, that's the first one. 
The second one is the frequency. How many days a week you stimulate that energy system? So what I've seen is that two times a week maintains it. But if you want to improve it, you want to start talking about three days a week, four days a week. Four days is ideal. And, and how have I learned that? Because again, giving people's training and seeing that, oh, they have done like only two days a week, this turn two, only one day with turn two. What I've seen is like, there's no improvement in these people where someone who does four days, five days, now we're talking. And the third point or principle is that, is that the duration. And this is a point because there's still a misconception that if you do endurance or, or low intensity, you need to be doing very long miles. That's not true necessarily. I think that someone to go to the Tour de France, yeah, sure. Each stage we're talking about is four to six hours or seven hours long. So you need to spend that time out there. But to improve the amount of function in these energy systems, you do not need to do five hours, four hours, three hours. What I've seen very well, specifically on the bike, about an hour and a half, it does it. Um, running, I would say an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. And this is why it's it's, it's it's important concept that you need to do five hours. And many people think, oh, I don't have an hour and a half to train. You know, I'm just going to go full gas. And then it's very important to improve the glycolytic capacity because first, as we age, we lose it. And, uh, and that's the turbo capacity, the high intensity. It's very important to train it. And uh, whether you're competing or not, this is where you win the tra- the races at the high intensity. You never win the races because you're the best on two guy. But I think that to, to stimulate those once or twice a week, that's enough from what I've seen. Even two days a week for a competitive athlete could be, and you can either have a specific day a week uh, where you can uh, do intervals that day. And the intervals can be two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, depends on your specialty. But you can also build some intensity days within a long day. And this way, you, you kill two birds with one stone. That is, you can do, let's say, an hour and a half day if you don't have much time to train at zone two. And then at the end of the training, you can do, let's say, uh, two intervals of five minutes each, uh, full gas, or one, one 10 or 15 minutes full gas. So that day, you stimulate two energy systems. That is your zone two, and the fat oxidation, and the, and, and the, and the glycolytic system. That's how we break it up, and, and, and that's what I do with these high elite athletes. And that's the 80-20 right. model, pretty much, of the polarized training. And the opposite of what I think an awful lot of people do. They're 80-20, but the other way around. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing I'm seeing personally, people more in the age groups, masters, etc. Yeah, they train very high intensity. And, 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 and as I'm sure you guys have seen, especially you, Howard, as a physician, is that you see people getting injured. Yeah. And high intensity exercise always for someone who might not be prepared. Again, not even elite athletes do that. You know, you don't see the athletes, you said earlier, putting those routines through those routines of like five days a week or six days a week, high intensity training. Elite athletes don't do that. Why recreational athletes, they have to do that, you know, and the inflammation and the, the repair that is needed to do that. I, I see, I do a lot of blo- blood analysis for biomarkers and I see a lot of uh, age, athlete, age group athletes with extensive muscle damage because they're always overtrained, fatigued, and they push it to the limits. Is that good for health? I don't think so. Is that sustainable? I don't think so either. I completely <laughs> agree. I think that I think that recovery is a weapon. I think it's horribly underutilized, even at our levels. I always I, joke, and you go that I think 
more than 80, 90% of my best performances in various races and things have come from, for whatever reason, I had to rest, I thought, too long before the event because of something else getting in the way. And almost every time, I did far better than I thought I would. And I mostly entered it thinking, oh my God, I'm screwed because I've, I haven't been able to train the way I wanted to, or I had to take four or five days off before the event. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I see this all the time. I see typical athlete who's he's very stubborn or she's very stubborn and eventually gets injured. Yeah, a stress fracture, for example, as a runner or ten, a tendinopathy, and 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 if I have a, a relationship with them, I tell, them, hey, thank goodness you got injured. And <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Well, now finally you're gonna freaking rest. And they they rest and they come out swinging, as you mentioned. So it's very typical. Huh? Well, rest is a relative term. I mean, rest doesn't have to be an absolute stay off the bike day. It it can be. A relaxed ride. I agree. When I see uh, rest, it's this mental component as well, right? If you're a high-level athlete, to train well, you need to train by yourself. That's ideal. If you're an individual sport, let's say a runner or a cyclist, for example, or even a swimmer, obviously you train mostly by yourself. But but if you train a lot by yourself, mentally it's hard. So that's why one day a week minimum, you need to do a very easy ride, and it's, it's a coffee ride where you get together with right. your bodies and get a coffee or ice cream and just hang out. That's good for the head. But I also, it's very, very important to do a day off because it's a full recovery day. I see this especially with, with runners that they might say, oh, I'm going to take an easy day, a recovery day today, and they end up doing an hour easy running. That, that's not a recovery day. I'm not saying that you can do one of those a week, if you will, but I, I think yeah, you should build another completely off the, the bike or the shoes, like a full biological recovery, a mental recovery day. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I started doing this like 25 years ago, one day off completely, and uh, people would throw tomatoes at me. Now, this is is a very common thing to do. Thanks again for doing this. It's been outstanding. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Really happy to, to talk to you tonight. Thanks. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. Content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. And we will not respond to requests for medical advice.